I'll just open to questions. Else first. Okay, all the rage in um, the humanities in Western universities is a thing called cultural Marxism. You see, orthodox Marxism in many ways failed. And one Marxist leader who understood this was Antonio Gramsci, Italian communist around 1930. And so he designed the idea of before we can make a political re revolution, we have to culturally capture you know, public, the public space. And um, so many people have taken that up. And in Pollock's student days, um, the so-called new left in America was all the rage. And so they were the pioneers of cultural Marxism in practice. Uh, in India, by contrast, you still have Orthodox Marxism, you know, Romila Tapar and all that, though some of them in their old age are growing away from it also. Um, but in, in the West, you see, Orthodox Marxism, for most people, is a distant memory. And it's very interesting here that you reveal that in Pollock's case, all these typically Marxist categories are still very much present. Nevertheless, his goal is cultural Marxism, in the sense that the proletariat, you know, the people as a category that is supposed to save humanity, has been replaced with the minorities. And in that respect, of course, it recognizes very much the Indian politics of secularism, which is also all for the minorities and against the majority. All right? um, however, um, Pollock's uh, position that moksha is not part of the Vedic Purushartas is, of course, very congenial, very much liked by cultural Marxists, but it is not a cultural Marxist position. It is one that is shared by 99% of Western Indologists. And now comes my question. Um, they will all say, and, and so in this sense, Pollock just simply follows the consensus, that there is simply no Vedic source that contains this moksha. Moksha appears later. And so originally there were three uh, Vargas, um, no, uh, three Purushartas, like there were originally three Vargas, three uh, classes in society, of which one split, you know, the third class, the production class, split into entrepreneurs or Vaishyas and uh, actual producers, uh, Shudras. Okay? Just like in the West, the French Revolution was of the third estate of the bourgeoisie. But then after the revolution, that class split into two, the bourgeoisie, the owners, and the actual producers, laborers, okay? So similarly, there were only three goals of life, and a fourth one was added later. Now, many, for many Hindus, this will sound like cursing. I don't know how many of them are present here, but you see in, on, on, on social media and so on, I get scolded a lot when I dare to say that the contents of Vedic religion as attested in the Veda Sanitas was different from present-day Hinduism. And yet, you see, it certainly was. Like you see, for instance, in the example I gave earlier about caste. You see, the caste system has a history. The caste system was first not there, 
within the recreated memory, in the family books it's just not there, then in the tenth book it becomes present as a concept but not yet as a social reality, then it becomes patrilinear in the fatherly line, and then later it becomes endogamous in the sense that husband and wife have to belong to the same caste. And that's the situation until the 20th century. Now you see very many Hindus say, oh but the Vedas, they justify our caste system. Whereas in reality, the Vedic system was very different from the historical caste system. So similarly, the concept of moksha, you see, was very prominent in later Hinduism, but in the Vedas, it was not yet there. Or can you prove the contrary? Okay, I uh, understand. That is why I concluded my uh, last statement with proposal of a text which can put both sides together as inseparable, the paramartic and I, I didn't ask just to include moksh or explain explanatory because it is the source of system. But so far as Sanskrit system, Sanskrit knowledge system Sanskrit is concerned, we have to put the whole Sanskrit, not half of it. Put the Atma away, the rest is dead body. So just to remain alive, it is necessary to put both Atma and the body. Thank you. Mm. I'm afraid that the extent of uh, Veda, when you say, you are restricting your observation only to the Samhita. Yeah, that's the use in Western Indology. Yeah. When they speak of the Vedas, but when you say Veda, Veda is in, includes up to Krishna. I know, I know that's probably, yes. uh, so to say that uh, Veda ca cannot support uh, Purusharja is not sustainable. But Veda is up to Upanishad. And that is why it is called Vedanta. Yeah. So at the end, end, end part of the Veda. And hence I think it is not sustainable. But one thing I wanted to know, I and mean, this is information I want, is a good suggestion that you have given. You should have a separate uh, listing for this. In some of your uh, series, you can you can put this. Very nice. You have very clearly you know, demonstrated that that is the paradigm on which he is arguing everything. Very clear. Has any Marxist responded? I mean, responded to this? I'm working on it. I have not given any concrete. Because you are you, you are you are from same <laughs> this thing. They have uh, fully acquainted with the uh, their tradition of Marxism. What, what, what is the, I I started uh, with the language of God. I started man, uh, taking back the thought process, right? After uh, finding out this, I just changed my paper. I submitted another paper, and later on, when I found it, I changed my paper. Okay, I, I will say something else. I'm just collecting those portions where. Pollock has not referred anywhere Marx or Marxist literature. But what I am doing, I am just correcting the quotations or uh, yes, portions from the Pollock. In terms another case of dishonesty. Yeah. And compatible, where one to one, we can find one to one uh, correspondence with the Marxist literature, Marxist analysis. I am just comparing those. And we will put both sides. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'll come to you, Professor. Sure. The last person. Uh, uh, my understanding of Polo is that uh, he's not differentiating Parmarthik and Mehwari, and that's right. I feel that he's honest uh, about uh, 
him not being a strict Marxist reading of our scripture. He, he never says that he is a Marxist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because he's not a, a he has not he has not given even a reference in the index of this language of God. You will not find the dialectics in the index. It is not there. So uh, does he does support Charvaka in his argument? It has to be seen. He says that in an interview he accepts he's a Charvaka. Uh -huh. He accepts that he's a Charvaka in the interview in the video. He accepts. So, so my question to you is Things that fall into place. <coughs> my question, question with this three. Yeah, yeah, please. <coughs> my question. Is, so, uh, do you see a difference between uh, what Polov is doing and what Kosambi did with our scriptures? Uh, and and added to that, uh, this uh, uh, what you are saying that Paramatik and Vyavarik is inseparable. I think. Professor Madran, maybe uh, uh, he can highlight uh, um, that he is not separating the two. What he is doing, he is making the political analysis of Paramarthi and trying to make it subservient to the Vaivahik Gyan through a political angle. Actually, is there a question to which you know the answer? No, second is a comment and first is a question. Okay. And, uh, Actually, the main, thrust, the main thrust is desacralization of Sanskrit. Whether he is, how he is interpreting, I have just, I have been seeing in the last two days, how he is interpreting, how he is hypothesizing, and how, uh, and when he is leaving it. I'm not, I'm not interested in that. What I want to say, I am against desecularization of Sanskrit. Therefore, what, I am here because only that. You are touched upon a wonderful point in my mind. The idea of oral tradition, which is simply junks it, as I heard from many people, is the one that needs to be attacked, not the, the separation. Yes, oral tradition is substantially Paramatic, we say, but <coughs> the way he junks oral tradition until you attack that and solve that problem, you're not going to solve the problem of actually, actually, it should be part of the whole of Sanskrit. Actually, the oral in, tradition. in philology, they are trying for oral tradition. In philology, no. they are trying for oral tradition, but there are disputes. <coughs> They don't find historicity there, and unless they find historicity, yeah. don't look for historicity. But still, we need to demolish it, and that I think is doable. Yes. Okay, on the doable note, I go to the last question. Because <laughs> it's eternal. You know, we had an earlier paper today where it was shown through quotations that. Along strategy is to discourage historicizing. And you're saying that he's following the historical methodology. In fact, if you read your marks carefully, the paradigm that you have outlined from, from primitive mode of production, feudalism, and so on, he says you don't have that in India. Calls it Asiatic mode of production. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not sure that the basic premise of your paper that he's a Prachinna Marxist mm -hmm. is really sustainable. In fact, I don't find really any evidence except some general stuff that nothing is sacred. But everybody believes that he's not the only one. You know, post Nietzsche and so forth, the entire enterprise is secular. So there's so 
always the metaphysical is, you know, to say something is metaphysical is actually to banish it from the realm of academic discourse. In analytic philosophy, Wittgenstein and others have said that metaphysical concepts are not in the proper domain of philosophy because they can neither be proven nor disproved. So I don't think that, you know, basically the methodology that you employ saying that, you know, he's a hidden Marxist and all that. First of all, I don't think it's sustainable. Secondly, the, you know, there are some general, which we pointed out even today, that the, the general or sort of overall similarities is that the legitimation for this political philology comes by an appeal to the good of the people. Well, that is a kind of Marxian move without defining who these people actually, are. Actually, actually, sorry for interruption. Actually, my presentation is half presentation. No, half or full. No, no, no. The, point. the second part, actually, two parts are there. One was paramorphic and negative, and second was the, the discrimination, the contradiction. Contradiction part is very important, and most of the uh, analysis which he is doing is from the contradiction part. I'm not saying that. Just, just leave it. No, no, we, 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 we just. This contradiction, uh, dialectical materialism, and uh, uh, you see, uh, this. I don't see what contradictions he's been pointing out. He hasn't given us proper examples. But anyhow, I think everybody's tired, and we'll just let it go. Right. So until the mic goes there, since you showed me like this, speak it out loud. Okay. Yeah. Just uh, again coming from a completely different background. I when I was in Cambridge, I used to interact a lot with theoretical physicists. Theoretical physicists, as as far as I remember, when I was in Cambridge as a student, they had the paradigm. Now is you would have heard about it: string theory, membrane theory, where they say the universe has got thirteen different parallel universes. Every single object, every molecule, every one of us are existing in this 13 different paradigms and things like that. It sounds exactly like what a metaphysical description of Maya would be, or at least a version of it. So yeah, I think we have to go really into uh, I mean, subject and I mean, into like, a completely different dimension to attack these foolish yeah, physical say a few formal words by way of uh, conclusion of this session. Uh, Mr. Satishankar is an economist and a strategist and he has tried to find out uh, parallelisms between the approach of Bloch and Marxism. So he has tried to produce uh, very many evidences for the same and he has given his strategy to demolish Kavakism and he has called for the production of evidence you know, to show that the Paramarthika and the Gavaharika are the two sides of the same coin and two, that Sanskrit is <coughs> the Devavani.
that even the <coughs> columns of Bharti Vidhutrashri, there have been issues discussed regarding the uh, divinity of Sanskrit as a Deva one. Uh, Mr. Elst pointed out uh, the issues with cultural Marxism and he sought to present the common Western view that the concept of moksha is not the Veda. But I think a, a different reading by Anandu Kumar Swam so, uh, is equally valid. He, he has some strong grounds to present the value of uh, moksha as available in the Vedic literature. In fact, it's a writing called Spiritual Authority and Temporal Power in Indian Theory of Government. Uh, he shows how uh, there is a certain ekavakyata, so to say, this is my word, between uh, across the Samhitas, the Brahmanas, the Aranyakas, and the Sipanishans. And what the Brahmanas present in the Adhyaknya level, the Samhitas present in the Adhidaiva level, and the, the same is presented in the Upanishads in the Adhyatma pattern. And therefore, there is a consistency and concordance and corroboration in these three levels. One is a ritualistic representation of the same idea, another is an Adhidaivik, or if you want to say mythological representation of the same idea. And things are stated in even the Upanishads, see they are stated not exactly, very plainly everywhere because even the Upanishads assert Paroksha Priyavai Devaha and they go to the extent of even saying Pratyaksha Dvishaha even. So rather than resorting to the Pratyaksha method, the Upanishads adopt the what he calls the analogical method, the Paroksha method. And therefore it is a bit difficult to accept uh, Mr. L's statement that the concept of moksha is not the Veda, but the word moksha may not occur in the Veda as such, that can be accepted, but it's equivalent concepts so that they can be perhaps just to the Vedas. So, um, anyhow, the, the communists have always sought to wreck the constitution from within, and this work of sabotage they have very consistently been doing, especially in the Indian context. The communist dream was that ultimately, upon the realization of the, the summum bonum of communism, the government will be there away. And they have tried to equate it with the statement in the Mahabharata. Nadandyo nacha dandikaha, narajyam nacha rajasid, nadandyo nacha dandikaha. So, Parasparam. So, they have tried to equate that with this. But the fortunate tragedy was communism itself withered away in its own land of birth. So, <laughs> though it's still uh, having its hold in China, and there are many votaries the same in India, most unfortunately, especially in the media, the, the communists entered into a pact with Nehru. They said, we will support your government from outside, but we want one department for ourselves. So they said, we want education. And NCERT was completely under their control and grips. And therefore, 
they spoiled the entire education system. They oh Macaulay to Macaulay, and they see uh, indoctrinated their ideas see the education system itself, and that is the reason we have thousands and thousands of people who are unconsciously supporting communism without knowing how it is a big plot and a fraud on history. Even the, the kinds of Dalit movements that we are witnessing today, as they have been very well brought out in Rajivalamka's Breaking India, they are all uh, offshoots of the Christian propaganda. For Christians, the main enemy was in Hinduism, the main enemy was the Brahmanas. So the Brahmins must somehow be destroyed. We find accounts, for example, as early as, uh, say, uh, early 18th century, of Westerners coming to India as travelers, who have recorded that even if the Brahmin be the poorest of the poor, even the richest Vaishya would fall at his feet, would show his respect to him. And there is no person on the earth who can be respected the more. So, for the West, it was the rich man who had to be honored. They, as they say, money is honey, little sonny. The rich man's joke is always funny. That is not the case in our country. The Brahmana was venerated for his utter devotion to knowledge, the intellectual and spiritual pursuits. I uh, gave the quotation yesterday. As Patanjali said, Brahmane Nishkarana Vedaha Sasradango Adhyayaha Gnayascha. So, this was the high level of spiritual pursuit that the Brahmins generally had. They could be exceptions here and there. And Brahmins were generally poor. So, this they wanted to destroy. See, Buddhism could be easily destroyed. Not so Brahminism or Hinduism in general. Why? That is because. The intellectual portion of Buddhism was much concentrated in the Viharas. So that's where the intellectual Buddhists stayed. And once those Viharas were destroyed, the good deal of support for the lay was lost. And they were at a loss. Whereas, whether it is Muslims or Christians who tried to destroy Hinduism, and how so many were Brahmins they killed, it was there in every house of every Brahmin and they would pursue knowledge. It was not possible to seek the center of see, this culture. Uh, Mr. Satishankar gave one quotation at the outset. So philosophy in India, as Radhakrishnan uh, wrote, it is the Indian spirituality of India and not any great political structure or social organization. Social organization is wrong here. It had a very good sound social organization. That's why, in fact, in the, uh, in the context of the release of the uh, Tamil translation of Breaking India in Bangalore, the Bangalore also one function was conducted, Subramanian Swami was present. And he said, after Islam came to power, to whichever country it stepped, in a matter of five or ten years, it could rout all the religious systems there and establish one single religion, namely communism. All local traditions were destroyed and it established communism, uh, Islam. Whereas, the only exception was in India. 
So, 800 years of rule nearly, and still all, not all could be converted. And that is because of the wonderful social structure, the, the Varna system that our society had. So, each had his own way of approaching the final truth. And as Anandu Kumar Swami has pointed out, it is not left to the merely intellectual and the spiritual plans of the Brahmins. The spiritual pursuit was. It is there for every, even the lowest person in society had his own way. As was cited by Manjushri Hukai, Sve Sve Karman Nyabhirataha. So, Sam Siddhim Labhate Varaha. And therefore, the way to liberation of moksha was open to every man, even the lowliest of the lowliest. And therefore, it is this strong conviction so that sustained Hinduism for centuries, for millennia, in spite of several attacks as pointed out by Radhakrishnan. And it is only after this, for the first time in Indian history, over 5,000 years, the British rule, and worse than that, in the post-Indian uh, independence period, the Indian rule, the Hindu government, that we saw a sabotage of all Indian traditional values by this system of education, which is made compulsory, and all wrong ideas were put into the heads of our citizens and young boys and girls, and we were misled. Anyhow, it is as a result of such an education system, so in fact, Marsoni warned against this, that see, even in those days, uh, uh, see, early 20th century or even late 19th century, Marsoni showed how <coughs> when the Macaulay system of education had already entrenched itself. You ask any Indian graduate about literature, he is eager to show his knowledge of Shakespeare. You ask him about Kalidasa, he doesn't even know the number of works he has written. They belong the names of the words, they belong the content bearing, the greatest poet of India. So who has been venerated see, for thousands of years, Indian graduate doesn't know anything about that. Kumarasamya also warned just two generations of intellectuals divested of their touch with Sanskrit, then the whole civilization will collapse. So that's what is happening now. So once again, we have to resuscitate this link with knowledge because it, is, it uh, throws open a new horizon, the vast literature that Sanskrit has. The only pan-Indian language is Sanskrit and no other language. And as Kovac himself has pointed out, uh, in fact, much more than what others have done, it is a pan-Asian language almost, in what's called aerial linguistics, so uh, study of, say, linguistic areas. So we find that the entire Asian subcontinent shares grammatical, uh, common grammatical features in different languages, so that it could be Japanese, it could be Korean, so it could be Indonesian, so all these share the same grammatical structure and a good deal of vocabulary too. So the earlier genealogical uh, classification of languages was based upon merely vocabulary. Words can travel from country to country, from language to language, but grammatical structure cannot so easily travel. Grammatical structure and thinking, they are more closely interrelated than mere vocabulary. And therefore you find that the entire Asian um, continent had this common essence. In fact, Polak, we must be grateful to Polak for finding out how 
so many inscriptions that you find in Malaysia or Indonesia uh, or say or Cambodia, so full of Sanskrit. In fact, there are more inscriptions there than here, perhaps in Sanskrit. And Sanskrit was the it provided the paradigm, whether for the metrical compositions or even for the themes for for their literature and so on. And the kings themselves see modeled their life and methods against the background of the principles of our Arthakastra and so on. So this way, this civilization, which was so which had such a vulgarity for so long, has been undermined and sought to be sabotaged by this Western system, and especially the, the communist ideas and ideals, so which have been thrust upon us by subterfuge and whose suggestion is yet to establish. So as far as the professor is saying that this must be supported by actual quotations from the original texts and uh, um, uh, sustained. And if that happens, and if it is really true that, of course, Raja Malhotra has pointed out how he is essentially Marxist in approach. And if this is very clearly established, I think the days of um, cultural communism here and political communism here will come to uh, an end to a great extent. Thank you very much.